Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us here at All Nations. Uh, We're continuing our series through the book of Exodus, and the title of today's sermon is The First Battle. The First Battle. Uh, Israel has crossed the Red Sea and has started its journey through the wilderness. Last week, we learned about their first grumblings in the wilderness, how when they lacked water, when they lacked food, they complained against Moses, and they complained against God. Israel was already in conflict in their hearts in the midst of the wilderness. And this week, we're going to see that Israel is going to experience now not only an internal conflict, but an external conflict with another tribe, a people known as the Amalekites, right? If you read through the Old Testament, you'll meet a lot of like kites and steins and things like that. Uh, These are the Amalekites. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage, Exodus chapter 17, Verses 8 to 16. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. And trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amen. The word of the Lord. When I was in college... I attended a church retreat where the guest speaker had us do something called the Moses Prayer. I think only guest speakers get to do weird stuff like this, right? This was the one and only time in my life when I experienced this Moses Prayer, and I honestly thought it was kind of ridiculous. Uh, We broke up into groups of three. We broke up into groups of three, and while one person prayed, the other two people held up their hands and joined in prayer. So just imagine that, you know, college students and we're, you know, after the music and the sermon, it's like it's time to break up into prayer and we're going to do the Moses prayer. And so I was in a group of two other people and we were just taking turns, right? Each took turns praying in this manner. And so imagine someone's touching your arm, right? And holding your arm up while everyone's praying. I think college is the last life stage where you can get away with something like this, right? Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure if we tried this today, after the sermon, right, after the song of response, we're going to all just do Moses' prayer together, uh, you wouldn't come back next week. Uh, you'd be like, hey, the music was pretty good, you know, the screen looked nice, nice campus, but all nations, those guys are weirdos, right, and, and you'll never come back. Now, this wasn't a charismatic church. This was a conservative Presbyterian church. And the speaker was actually a professor from a reformed seminary. Nothing crazy happened that evening. But the reason why he had us pray in this peculiar manner 
was because he told us that God's people need to learn how to pray with God's people. Let me say that again. The God's people, we need to learn how to pray with God's people. We need to learn how to intercede for each other. We need to learn what it means to depend on one another in prayer. And that had a lasting impact on me. Church, I believe that this is still a message we need to learn today. In our highly individualized Western culture, prayer has become a very private exercise. Most of us don't like to pray out loud. A lot of us don't know what to do when someone else is praying besides listen, right? Besides listen. There's certain church traditions where a lot of people join in. They say something profound. Everyone's like, amen, right? And you're like, whoa, I guess. And, but it, and, and it's a great chorus. If you go to the Korean congregation, everyone seems to know when to say amen at the same time. And I'm always just like, amen, right? Um, but for us, we're just kind of listening. And we're like, oh, that was a nice statement. Maybe we nod our heads, right? Or we shake our heads, whatever it might be. Even when we're praying together at the same time, we often are just praying as individuals without much regard to the people around us unless they're praying really loudly and they're distracting you and they're praying so loud they start incepting you with their words. And so you just start repeating what they say. They say, oh, Lord, your kingdom come. And you're like, oh, Lord, your kingdom come. And then you kind of stop and you're like, wait, I need to... I need to pray and I need to talk to God. Well, in our passage today, we're not told explicitly that Moses was praying as his arms were lifted up. We don't have any of the words that he was praying while Joshua and the Israelites were in battle. But we clearly see that Moses was interceding. We clearly see that what Moses was doing on the hill with his arms lifted to God had a direct effect on what was going on in the battlefield. And theologians from John Calvin to Charles Spurgeon and on, they all believe that Moses was doing much more than just holding up his hands symbolically over the battlefield. Moses was interceding for his people. As he received help from Aaron and Hur, he was praying for the battle. And the question I want to ask throughout this message is this. Friends, do you know the power of prayer? Do you really know it? Do you live in it? Or is prayer shallow and is prayer absent in your life? Do you know what it means for Jesus to intercede on your behalf for you today? Do you know what it means for you to intercede on behalf of others? This is what we're going to look at today as we work our way through the passage. And as we study this first battle that Israel experiences in the wilderness, we're going to reflect on three things. First, our enemy. Second, our battle. And finally, our banner. Okay, our enemy, our battle, and our banner. Verse 8 tells us that a man named Amalek fought with Israel at this place called Rephidim. And the first thing we need to ask is, who was this man? Who was Amalek? And why did he attack? Well, Amalek was a descendant of Esau, and his people were the Amalekites. If you remember the story in Genesis, Jacob and Esau were brothers. Esau was the older brother, Jacob was the younger brother, and Jacob stole Esau's birthright, right, over a bowl of soup, and he stole his brother's blessing from their father, right, as he kind of 
uh, you know, wore wool, uh, yeah, uh, animals' clo- uh, skins on his arms and, and things like that. He stole and swindled the blessing and the birthright of his brother Esau. And as a result, Esau and his descendants, they were cursed. They were cut off from the covenant of God. Talk about a long grudge because one um, perspective of why, why did the Amalekites attack, right, uh, the Israelites? And the answer is this. They wanted to avenge the wrong done against their ancestor. They knew that Israelites were the descendants of Jacob and they were the descendants of Esau and they wanted justice. They wanted to make things right. And so for hundreds and hundreds of years, they held a grudge against the descendants of Jacob. Another simple explanation as to why they attacked was simply because the Amalekites were this violent, nomadic people. And they were trying to seize an opportunity to plunder Israel while they were in the wilderness and protect their own territory. That's probably a bit of both. Either way, we're told in our passage that Amalek and the Amalekites, they attacked Israel first. And this conflict would last for generations throughout the Old Testament. We learn more about just the nature of this conflict and this battle in Deuteronomy chapter 25. In verses 17 and 18, Moses is recollecting this event and he's reminding Israel of this first battle. And he writes this, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. And that's the NIV translation. The attack was cowardly and it was unprovoked. Israel was weary from their travels through the wilderness and the Amalekites attacked the Israelite caravan as they were traveling. A million people plus. They attacked not from the front. They didn't announce their war or their conflict. They attacked from behind. They went after those who were weaker and lagging in their travels. These probably included women with children and the elderly and just how a pack of wolves will go after the weakest members of a herd. The Amalekites attacked Israel from behind and they went after the weak. This is why Moses says they had no fear of God. The Amalekites didn't fear God and they were enemies to God and his people. And Israel's battle with the Amalekites. It's a picture, actually. It's a picture of the church in spiritual warfare. It's a picture for us. Because just as Israel was delivered from slavery, and just as they were wandering through the wilderness, headed towards the promised land, we too, as Christians, we have experienced a great deliverance, a great salvation. We have been rescued from sin and death, and we too are headed towards glory. But along that journey, God's people get ambushed. Along that journey, we encounter enemies and are attacked. And just as Israel had enemies in the wilderness, we too have enemies in this life. Now, who would you say your your enemies are today? Right? Who are some of your enemies? Who are you embattled with? Some of you might say, my in-laws, right? I'm so glad the holidays are over. Some of you might say, my coworkers. Right? You even have friends who are enemies, and so we call them frenemies. Right? Who are your enemies today? And in what way are you engaged in this kind of spiritual warfare that Israel is experiencing in the wilderness? 
And when we think of spiritual warfare, we, t- we tend to think too much about the physical world. We like to put a name and a face to our enemies. And so Christians will talk of other religious groups as the enemy, right? The Scientologists, the Muslims, the Mormons. Some Christians will talk to, will refer to the enemy in political terms. Oh, the Democrats, those liberals and the progressives, they're the enemy. Oh, the, uh, oh, the right wing, right? Alt-right, Republicans, conservatives, they're the enemy. You're going to hear a lot of that in this election year. Like I shared earlier, maybe you think your boss is the enemy. Maybe you're just driving down the five and that person who's tailgating you for no reason, they're the enemy. You're like, Lord, bring a cop right now <laughs> and bring me justice, right? Or that neighbor who never cleans up after their dog and that dog loves your yard, they are the enemy, right? Likewise, many of us think of negative situations as spiritual warfare. When things go wrong, maybe you, you, you'll speak the Christianese and say, oh man, that's, that's just spiritual warfare. That's spiritual warfare. You lose your job. You get into a car accident, right? You experience struggles at school, in relationships, poor health. And we have this tendency to think, oh, this is spiritual warfare, Spiritual warfare going on. But the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 that spiritual warfare is exactly that. It's spiritual and it's not physical. Okay? The true nature of spiritual warfare is spiritual. It's not physical. In verse 12, he says this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so really, is the neighbor with the dog your enemy? Is your wrestling, is your contest, whether the paycheck isn't what you expected, what you think you deserve, whether you lose your job or, 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 or you fall sick. Is that true spiritual warfare? And the answer is no. Friends, our enemy is the devil. And our battle is against him and the sin that he tempts us towards. Church, your primary enemy is the devil. And the battleground is your heart. It's not just work. It's not just school. It's not in our country. 2020 is not a battle to win for the kingdom and make sure our president or our senators or our representatives get into office. That is not the kind of kingdom battle that God's people should be engaged in. This is where the story of the Exodus is so helpful for us. Because in the greatest battle for Israel's deliverance, God told them, In Exodus chapter 14, before they part, before the Red Seas part and they walk across dry land, as Pharaoh and the Egyptian army are coming hard after them, God tells Israel, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to listen. You only have to listen. The Lord will fight for you. God didn't tell Israel, turn and fight Pharaoh. He didn't tell the men of Israel, grab your swords, take arms against the Egyptian army. No, he knew that their greatest need and in their greatest battle, he would be their strength. He would be their sword. He would be their shield. And Israel became a free, liberated people. But now as freed people, things change. 
Moses tells Joshua, gather the men and fight. You are freed people. Gather the men and fight. And the same is true for us. Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, has fought and won the greatest battle for us. Through the cross, he has liberated us from the bondage of sin. He has won the battle that none of us could. And now, you and I, we are free people. We are no longer enslaved, and we are called to fight. We're called to fight temptation. We're called to persevere in faith. We too, like Israel, we are in the wilderness, and we are pilgrims on our way to glory. This earth is not our home. Heaven is our home. That's our destination. And along the way, in this pilgrimage that you and I are on, we are called not to be passive, but to fight the good fight of faith. And so friends, today as we we talk about this first battle and we talk about attacking and, 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 and fighting and whatever it might be, would you remember that your battle is not against flesh and blood. Your battle against, is against the devil. Your battle and your striving, your contending is against sin. And your heart is the battlefield. And so yes, you may experience the battle at work. But the problem is not get rid of my boss, get rid of my coworkers. It's Lord, heal my heart. Would you, would you guard me from, from contempt? from division, from pride, from anger. Your battle is not what your neighbor does or doesn't do with their dog or their trash cans or how they do or don't mow their lawn and how that's affecting your property value, right? Your battle is maybe greed and vanity, right, and pride. The battlefield is your heart, and we're called to fight for holiness, to fight for obedience, to fight for joy in Christ. Let's move to our second point, and I've already talked about the battle, but I want to go a little bit deeper into this point. In verse 9, Moses says to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of a hill with the staff of God in my hand. On the first day when Amalek attacked, Israel was in survival mode. They had to just defend themselves from this rear surprise attack. They had to gather and protect their people. And then Moses tells Joshua, tomorrow we will fight. Tomorrow the battle will truly begin. And the promise of tomorrow, okay, is very important in the book of Exodus. Tomorrow signals a great redemptive event. Tomorrow in the book of Exodus, that word, that phrase triggers this this vision of something great happening. God's going to do something great. During the ten plagues, God repeatedly told Moses and Israel, tomorrow this sign shall happen. So according to the will and timing of the Lord, the flies, the locusts, the hail, and finally that tenth plague where the angel of death passes over Egypt, that all happened according to God's word and promise of tomorrow this will take place. And God was never late. God was never late. And so in the same manner, after Israel has been attacked, after they feel vulnerable and exposed, Moses says, tomorrow there will be a battle. I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Tomorrow you will see Yahweh deliver us from our enemies. God gives us strength for today 
and bright hope for tomorrow. What a beautiful hymn that is. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Brothers and sisters, do you have bright hope for tomorrow? We need to guard our hearts from cynicism. We need to guard our hearts from despair. And we need to guard our hearts from just hoping in an earthly, circumstantial tomorrow. For us, our tomorrow isn't Monday morning and say, oh man, Pastor Mikey promised blessings are going to come down tomorrow. Monday, something good better happen. No, you might lose your job tomorrow, right? I hope nobody does, right? Oh, it's a holiday, MLK, yeah. All right, that's true, that's true. Our hope for tomorrow is in the final deliverance that Jesus Christ will secure for us when he returns. We do not know the day or the hour, but we surely know he is coming back. And he's coming back for us. He's coming back to deliver us from our frail bodies. He's coming back to deliver us from all of the injustices, all of the evils, all of the sorrows of this world. Brothers and sisters, for those of us who are in Christ, we truly have a bright hope for tomorrow. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that though the physical battle is taking place between Joshua and Amalek, and I'm sure there's some of us who like, would love more details. Like, how was the fight going on, and how were they winning, and, 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 and what, what, like, how many people were fighting, and we would love all of those details about the physical battle. As we read this passage, we actually see that the real focus is about Moses and what's going on on top of the hill. The real battlefield is on the hill. And while Moses is on this hill, something peculiar happens. Moses raises his arms with the staff of God. And as he does so, Israel prevails. They are winning. They are gaining ground. They are fighting the Amalekites off. And then when he lowers his arms, the Amalekites start to prevail. How weird must must that have been? My son, Seth, he, he just turned one, and he's learning cause and effect, right? We try to, like, you know, preserve him from, or protect him from, like, TV time and technology, but he just goes after the remote controls, and he's learned to turn on the TV. And so he'll literally grab the TV remote and start pushing buttons and wait for things to pop up, right? And then if he grabs the wrong remote, like the DVD remote, then he's pushing the buttons, nothing happens, right? And he starts getting frustrated, Right, frustrating. So there's this cause and effect, and, and that's like sensational for him. But imagine what it was like for Moses and for Aaron and her to see the arms raised, Israel prevails. The arms come down, Israel starts losing. Here's the thing, though. Moses is an old man at this point, past the age of 80, and he can't hold his arms up forever. Were you guys ever punished by your parents or aunts and uncles, and you had to go into a corner and raise your arms? I remember I had to do that once for 10 minutes and I was dying, right? Or maybe if your parents were a little crueler, they'll tell you to grab books and go straight out, 90 degrees, right? Well, Moses couldn't keep his arms up forever and so he was growing weary. And so his brother Aaron and a man named Hur, they have Moses sit down on a rock and they said, lift your arms and we'll hold your arms up beside you. And so that's the position. They weren't holding it this way. They were... At waist length, he's sitting down, and they could just hold his arms up the whole time until sunset, and the battle was won. 
What's going on here? What's the significance of the raising of arms? I don't think that Moses had Yoda-like powers. You guys remember the scene in the Return of the Jedi when Yoda raises the X-wing from out of the swamp? And you're like, man, Yoda is the man. He has power, right? He has power. I don't think that's what was going on at all. No. When Moses raised the staff, when he raised his hands over the battlefield, Moses wasn't demonstrating his own power, but instead he was appealing to the power of God. He was interceding on behalf of his people, and he was saying, God, save your people. Lord, we need you. Would you deliver us? It was a posture of dependence, not of his own might, not of his own strength, but of dependence and need for Yahweh. And this is a recurring theme in the book of Exodus. After the plague of hail devastated Egypt, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron in and he pleads and he confesses his sin and he says, please make the hail stop. Moses, would you intercede on our behalf, on Egypt's behalf to God to make the hail stop? And in Exodus 9.29, Moses says to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Moses, in intercession, stretches his hands out towards the Lord. He made intercession for Egypt. He made intercession for Israel. And none of it was out of his own power. It was always an appeal to the power of God. Friends, this is what intercessory prayer is. We are appealing on behalf of one another to the Lord. What a beautiful thing. We, we, we know that, that we in ourselves, we can't fix your problems. That we can't And we are not the solution to the evils that you are experiencing in life. But we believe that God is able to rescue. That God is able to deliver. And so we intercede on behalf of one another. We send one another up to the Lord. We lift one another up to God. That's intercessory prayer. And if you don't believe that that's powerful, if you don't believe that intercessory prayer is meaningful, And you don't believe in the Bible and the stories of God's people and how they prayed for one another, supported one another, comforted one another, interceded on behalf of one another in the Old and the New Testament. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers and pastor of uh, one of the largest churches in London uh, in his day, supposedly they had over 6,000 members, okay? Powerful preacher, Charles Spurgeon once said, no man can do me a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. No one can do me a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. Why would he say that? What does he believe about prayer that you and I don't? Because for others of us, we'd be like, ah, you know, you can write me a check that would make all of my stresses go away, right? Oh, can you, can you heal my family member? Oh, can you, can you put in a good word for me and get me into this company? Get me this job opportunity. Get me into this program. That's what we want from people. But somebody who truly knows the power and the beauty and the gift of prayer will say, the most beautiful and kind thing you can do for me 
is pray for me, is intercede for me. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon, where does the power in your preaching come from? Where do you get such passion, such might, such power? And Mr. Spurgeon would take that person down into the basement of his church. And there in the basement was a prayer room for intercession. And he said, here is the powerhouse of this church. Here, as our church members get on their knees and they intercede for me, as they intercede for you, as they intercede for this city, as they intercede for the world, here is the powerhouse of our church. Joshua and the Israelites, they won their first battle, not because of military might, but because of the intercession of Moses, as he called upon the power of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, will you contend in prayer with me? Do you contend in prayer for me? This is a question, right? Do you pray for me? Or do you just come and expect me to do a good job, right? Have you prayed for the preaching of God's word? Have you prayed for the worship of God's people? Have you prayed not only for yourself and your service and your engagement, but for one another that when we gather together, we would experience communion, nearness, grace from our God? Will you contend in prayer for one another. You see, here's the scary thing. I think for a lot of us, we are lacking in our prayer life because we can get by without prayer. We do. We get by without prayer. You can make good grades without prayer. Okay? The question is, did you go to class? Did you study? Did you put the time in? Right? You can pay your bills without prayer. You can raise your kids Without prayer, we can do so much in life, and this is why we have such shallow and tepid prayer lives. We don't pray, and our lives don't become unraveled. So we think it's okay, right? We think it's okay. We think things are going okay. But know this, okay? Yes, you can pay your bills. Yes, you can make good grades. Yes, you can get by without prayer. But the things that you and I need the most the things that that are most precious and eternal for us, you cannot get without prayer. You cannot experience the deliverance of God without prayer. You cannot experience the power of God without prayer. You cannot experience and witness the transforming grace of God to make dead people alive, blind people able to see, the hopeless and despair find purpose and joy and life without prayer. And Jesus knows this, and this is why Jesus is the great intercessor for us. Jesus is the greater Moses, and as such, he makes intercession for his people. In Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus is described as the perfect high priest. He is the eternal high priest, and because of his office, and because of that unique role that he has, verse 25 in Hebrews 7 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love that verse. Not just save partly, 
Not just save questionably or conditionally. He is able to save us to the uttermost. Because he always lives to make intercession for us. What is Jesus doing right now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And yes, he is waiting, coming to judge the living and the dead. But right now, you know what Jesus is doing? He's making intercession for you. He's praying for your protection. He's praying for your perseverance. He's praying that you would know God, experience him, and walk with him. Do you know the difference between uh, Peter and Judas? Okay, Both were disciples. Both fell into sin. Judas, after he betrays Jesus, out of grief he goes and he hangs himself. Peter, after he denies Jesus three times, Jesus meets him and restores him. Do you know the difference was? Jesus goes up to Peter and he says, Satan, he wants you, Peter. He wants you just like he wants Judas. Satan, your enemy, wants to take you and keep you from God's holy family. But Jesus says to Peter, but I have prayed for you. I have interceded for you. That is the only difference between Judas and Peter. It is the intercessory work and ministry of Jesus Christ. And that gift is ours. That's what Jesus is doing for you, to preserve you, to protect you, and to sustain you. What a gift, what a beauty, what a grace. That's the power of intercession. When we take one another, and our needs, our weaknesses, our woes. And we don't try to be the solution. We know that God alone is, and we pray for them. We intercede on their behalf. We say, Lord, would you, would you reveal? Would you speak? Would you help? Would you guide? This is the area where, um, as a pastor of our church, I'm the most curious to see what would happen if we could become a people of prayer. I have the most curiosity regarding our church when it comes to prayer because we see it every week. I mean, what would happen if, if we steward over our finances well? If we are generous and we tithe, we see things like, you know, we pay the bills, uh, we can buy speakers, we can, we can support our community groups. If you've never been a part of our community group, did you know all the meals that you eat? Our church reimburses. When I first came to this church six years ago as the executive pastor, I thought that was ludicrous. I looked at the budget. I was like, why are we paying for every community group's meals? Take some personal responsibility and pay. But we said, hey, we believe in, in, in hospitality. We believe in table fellowship. We believe in community group ministry that much. We're going to put our fiscal resources there. We're able to send teams out to Kyrgyzstan, to China. We can support full-time missionaries. We can do a lot of things as we steward well. I've seen it. As we serve faithfully, stages will go off. Hospitality teams will, will, will serve in our education department. I see our church serving faithfully, and there's so much fruitfulness there. If we would commit to the word of God, there are discipleship, discipleship groups happening. Every week, Bible studies are happening. I hear of, 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 of groups reading the Bible together, journeying the Bible through one year, and those are beautiful things. The one area... Where we are lacking, the biggest what if that's in my heart when I think about our church is, what if we were a people of prayer? What if we were as diligent 
and devoted and faithful and, 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 and committed to prayer as we are these other areas of our life and our church. What would that look like? And I want to be honest, I haven't seen it. It's absent. It's absent in, in my life in a lot of ways. It's absent in our members. It's absent in our leaders. We gather 350 people on a Sunday. We have a prayer meeting once a month, 8 a.m. We're not saying 5.30 every day, right? We're not, we're not crazy. We get 20 people at that meeting. If we get 30 people, we're like, oh my gosh, revival's breaking out. It's like, that's like a tenth of our church coming out to pray. And then just because you go to a prayer meeting doesn't mean that that's like the, that nobody else is praying. I don't, I don't want to be, you know, that naive. But I do believe that, that God calls us corporately to pray together, to contend together. We need to pray privately and regularly. But I wonder what would it look like if we joined our hearts together in prayer and contended for the things that mattered most? What kinds of blessings would we experience? What kind of transformation and change and renewal might we experience if we didn't just believe in the power of prayer, but we lived in it? We practiced it. We expressed our dependence on God outwardly through prayer. And not just say and tell ourselves, I'm depending on God. But through the lifting of our hands, through the support and community of the body of Christ, we are praying together. What would that look like, church? What would that look like? Let's move to our final point, our banner. The passage closes with the Lord telling Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Two things are going on here. First, right, uh, God tells Moses, write this down. Write this event, record this, and then he says, do this for Joshua. And it's weird because you think, man, Joshua was in the midst of the battle. He was the general for Israel. If there's anyone that should remember this event and know this event, it is Joshua. But here's why Joshua needs to hear it. It's because he was in the midst of the battle, because he was fighting He didn't see, he didn't know exactly what was going on on top of the hill. He's just trying to stay alive as he's fighting Amalek and the Amalekites. Sometimes when you're in the middle of the battle, you don't realize everything else that's going on to secure your victory. You don't realize the support that you're receiving from the people around. You don't realize the work and the hand of God that is securing your victory. There's always this tendency to think, hey, actually, it was me. I worked hard. I was diligent. I was skilled. We are all prone to pride. And we need these reminders that all that you have, it's not because of your hard work and giftedness. So much of it is because of the people around you. So much of that, it comes from the grace and the work of God in your life. You see, Joshua would be the successor to Moses. 
And he would lead Israel into the promised land. And he would face the Amalekites in future battles. And the Lord wants Joshua to remember in written form, in the word of God, that even after Moses is gone, I am still with you. I mean, just think about that. Moses, your mentor, Moses the leader, his time ends in the wilderness. He doesn't go into the promised land. And Joshua leads the conquest generation. And even though Moses is is gone, Joshua needs to remember God is always with him. God has made a promise not only to Moses, but to him. He has made a promise to all of his people to bring them into the land of milk and honey. The second thing that we need to see in these final verses is this. God wants us to remember his faithfulness and his victory. This is why Moses builds an altar of worship and he calls it, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. And in in battle, a king's banner symbolized that the king was still standing and that hope still remained. If the banner fell, that meant the king was dead. If the banner fell, that means that the, the battle was done. But as long as the soldiers could look back, they could look around the battlefield and see their banner standing tall, the soldiers knew that they were not defeated and they could fight with courage. And for the people of God, we get to declare the Lord is our banner. The Lord is our banner. His throne is everlasting and he is our rock. He is our rally point. We are united in Jesus Christ. And Isaiah the prophet, he prophesies that we would have a greater banner than this altar of rocks that Moses built. After this battle at Rephidim, Moses builds this altar of rocks and he says, this I don't even know how big it was. I can't imagine it being anything crazy, right? This is to memorialize God's victory and his presence with us. Well, Isaiah says, we're going to get a greater banner than that. And in chapter 11, he says this. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. And his resting place will be glorious. Jesus Christ is our banner. And what a beautiful image and a promise that is for all of God's people through all generations and to the ends of this earth that we are going to rally to him on that final day when Jesus returns, that tomorrow that is promised to us, when the new heavens and the new earth are established, when every tear will be wiped from our eye, that resting place will be glorious. Because Jesus is our banner. That is the promise for us today. And this banner is most precious to the people, not as they're passive and comfortable and, and quote-unquote living their best life. The banner of Jesus is most precious to us as we're in the midst of battle. As we experience fear and anxiety and uncertainty, when we experience the dread of the enemy, Satan himself coming at us and tempting us, trying to divide our hearts and our faith in God, in those moments, that's when you and I need the banner the most. Don't you need it today? Doesn't your family need the banner of Jesus Christ? Doesn't this community 
Doesn't the world need this glorious resting place, this good news that Jesus alone is able to offer us? Would you consider Christ? And would you go to him and his banner? For there is life, there is joy, there's power there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just your grace and your word to us. We thank you that you give us these promises and these reminders of who you are, of what you, what you have done and what you promise to do. Lord, would you help us to truly believe, to truly believe and, and, and not just do that as a mental exercise, but to depend on you in faith through prayer. Father, I pray that you would make us a prayerful people. Would you have mercy on us for our prayerless lives? God, we take your grace for granted. We are content with the ordinary ongoing of our lives in this world. But God, you remind us we were not created for this world. We are pilgrims and we are sojourners. And so God, would you put the hope of heaven in our hearts? Help us to see the true enemy. Help us to see that the enemy is not found in in a person of a different creed or color. The enemy is not in a political party. The enemy is not of flesh and blood. Help us to discern the attacks and the avails of Satan. And when we do feel tempted, would you be our refuge? refuge and resting place. In the midst of our battles, Lord Jesus, would you be our banner? All we have is you, Lord. All we have is you. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.